Well, good morning, everybody. This morning, we're going to wrap up this four-part series that I've been doing, uh, kind of a mini-tour through the book of Judges. And if you're not familiar with the book of Judges, it's this fascinating book in the Old Testament that covers a very dark period in Israel's history and their relationship with God. For 400 years or so, they went through this cycle repeatedly of loving God, following God, being blessed by God, forgetting where those blessings came from, abandoning their faith in God, trouble coming that caused them to recognize that they really needed God and call out to him, and he would send a judge as a leader, both spiritually and militarily often, to lead them out of trouble. And they worshiped God again, and they started the cycle over and over and over. Twelve times in 400 years, they do that full cycle. This morning, I want us to look at the life of Jephthah, and I will not ask for a show of hands of how many people know his story. It's kind of tucked in an odd spot, and it's an odd story in the Old Testament. You begin to read about Jephthah, you think straight out of the box, he's pretty much got it made. I mean, it says Jephthah was the Gilead, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, and his father was Gilead. So that was a legendary name among the people, Gilead. And so he had this great pedigree, and even though it's a weird niche, he's kind of figured out his niche in life, he is a fantastic warrior. Seems like he's got it all together until we read further and find out his mother was a prostitute. That's a wrinkle in the story. So Jephthah is the son of this tawdry affair, and it charts a course in life for him that's fraught with trouble. Because Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. They said to him, hey, you're not going to get any of dad's inheritance because you're the son of another woman. Jephthah didn't deserve any of this. None of it was his fault. In fact, according to Old Testament law and cultural tradition, Jephthah was the son of his father. He was entitled, when his dad died, to half of the estate. And the remaining half would be divided up among whatever sons he had besides Jephthah. So, He was entitled to much better treatment than he got, but because of this Old Testament law, I think that's why his brother said to him, you're not welcome here anymore. He was ostracized. And the most hurtful part of this whole thing to me is that we have no record of his parents saying anything in his defense. So Jephthah fled from his brothers, and he settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. Jephthah used his leadership gifts to form what we would call today a terror cell. And they literally preyed on the weak and the helpless in Gilead, in their homeland, the very people who had hurt them. They marched through a list of grievances, in effect. So it's important to know about Jephthah's life that he is not this Robin Hood type character with noble intentions. He's leading a group of men who are morally bankrupt. Thankfully, his life doesn't end there. He moves from this rebellious phase of his life into eventually becoming a judge and a spiritual leader in the nation of Israel. 
And that path that takes him there takes him through his pain. It takes him through his anger. It takes him through confronting the very people who had ostracized him. And the amazing part of the story is that every step in that path brings him closer to God. It is so good to have Kerry back up there. Uh, It's good to see him again. And it's even better to listen to him than it is to look at him. So that's, that's a bonus. Uh, and it just reminds me, I don't know if this whole 20th anniversary celebration is doing this to you, but it's caused me to take some time to just think about how long I've been here and what that's been like. Uh, and there's a lot for us to celebrate in each of our lives. For me, uh, Connie and I walked through the doors of Westridge um, here about 11 years ago. So we've been here for a little more than half. Uh, the first three years... Um, we were just trying to find a church home and trying to find our way here at Westridge. Uh, we had been on a journey before that for about a year of searching for a church home. And, and if you've done that, if that's where you are now, or if it's recent, you, could, you remember, it's just not a lot of fun, right? You just go into churches and go, ooh, that was, mm, no, yeah. Um, and you want to sit in the back like so you can slip out if it's just not going great, right? And somehow you get trapped. And then there are some that you go, yeah, it's close, but not. And so we're in the middle of this looking around. We've been to Westridge a few times. And I remember the message that Darren gave when the, it just all clicked for me. Um, I don't remember all of his messages. I won't lie to you, but this one was memorable. And he said in the middle of the message, you know, he said, so some of you in looking for a church home are like saying things like, I want a church that'll wow me. I want a church that'll move me. I want a church that'll feed me. And he said, those are all wrong thoughts. And he went on through the talk and it was like he ended up by saying something to the effect of what you really need to be looking for is a church that will use you. A church where your gifts and your abilities can be used, where you can have an impact with your life. And I remember looking at Connie and going, it feels like he's talking to us. Like, did you tell him about our conversations? Is that, if you like tipped our hand? And it's just the nature of stuff around here that this, the messages I hear from here just constantly speak to my heart. I had no idea, you know, in the next three years as we plugged in and served and did a lot of different things around here, that one day, you know, Darren uh, would recruit me to come on staff through a text. Um, (laughs) He's just that smooth, right? He is smooth enough. He got me to work for a year for no pay. So there is something to him. Um, And this fall marks nine years. Uh, that I've been on staff here, and it's been so fun to be a part of this church. And I just, in thinking about it, I don't look at this as a job, which is the best part, right? When you really love the people you're doing something with and you love what you're doing, it doesn't feel like work. It feels like family. It feels like home. Um, it feels, as I tell people all the time, that I have found the place where I belong on the island of misfit toys. Because <laughs> that's how I describe this place. You know, here we understand, and I love this, we understand that everyone is broken in some way. Everyone has things that they're working on or need to be working on. And we don't have to pretend that we have it all together when we come together as a church. We don't have to pretend that way in life. We can just be me and be real. And I have loved that. And so because of that, I get to just be me, and I get to figure out 
how to love God better and how to love others better and how to help other people do those two things as well. So I am glad that 11 years ago we walked through that door and that this has become our church home and you've become our family. So thanks for that. Um, Now, I'm just going to stop talking about that. Um, Some would suggest I'll just pray and we're done, but I'm not. I'm going to go ahead and tell you about Jephthah. And we'll talk about what his journey looked like. How did he actually go from the person that we hear in the first part of chapter 11 into being a spiritual and military leader for the nation of Israel? And it's in Judges chapter 11, and the story reads like this. So sometime later, after his family had kicked him out, after he'd become this terrorist and the leader of a terror cell, uh, sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to Jephthah from the land of Tob. Apparently, read between the lines, they've been fighting the Ammonites, and it's not going well. So the generals get together and they go, look, here's what we need. We need somebody to lead us who is tactically savvy. We need somebody to lead us who is brutally fierce. And so they talk about it and they go, you know, our best shot at that is Jephthah. And so they go to him and they say, hey, why don't you come back? Why don't you be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites? And you almost hear Jephthah going, we? When did this become a we? He's not buying any of it because he goes on to say, hey, didn't you hate me? Weren't you the very people who drove me out of my father's house? Why are you coming to me now when you're in trouble? It's a great question. And the generals in their response know they're busted, right? They don't, they don't even try to defend themselves. They just answer him with one word that tells all when they say, nevertheless, <laughs> like, yeah, we know we treated you awful, but in spite of that, we're turning to you now for help. So come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. He spends the next few verses negotiating with them, confirming that they're willing to do what they actually said and let him not only lead the army into battle, but lead everyone when he's done. And so he accepts their agreement and turns immediately to confront the king of the Ammonites. And Jephthah sent him a messenger with this question. What do you have against me that you've attacked my country? The king of the Ammonites sends a reply back and says, When Israel came up out of Egypt, they took away my land, and then he defines the boundaries from the Ahorn to the Jabbok River and all the way to the Jordan River. And now you need to give it back peaceably. Jephthah goes into a very eloquent written response to this king. And in it, he just basically lays out the reasons why this king has no claim to this land, why this king has no just cause in this military campaign. He starts off by saying to the king, look, you're just morally wrong in this. You're not righting a wrong, you're actually committing a wrong. Because Israel didn't take the land of Moab or any land of the Ammonites. Israel took over all the land of the Amorites who lived in the hill country. So we didn't attack your forefathers. We didn't pillage and plunder and take your land. You're just wrong. You have no moral grounds. Theologically, you're wrong, he says. Since the Lord God of Israel has driven the Amorites out before his people Israel, what right do you have to take it over? 
won't, won't you do the same thing that we're doing? Don't you take what your God, Kimosh, gives to you? And likewise, whatever the Lord has given to us, we will possess. Now, this may have been one of the really serious mistakes that Jephthah made because he cites the wrong God. This isn't the God of the Ammonites. This is the God of the Moabites. He's confused his history here, and that may be what set the king off. But he goes on to say, historically, you're wrong. For 300 years, Israel has occupied this territory and all these settlements. Why didn't you? Why didn't your ancestors? Why has no one except you for 300 years made the claim that you technically own this land and it should be given back to you? Look, I haven't wronged you, Jephthah says, but you are doing me wrong by waging war against me. In light of all this, Jephthah says, you have no cause to go to war against us. So we need to just call a truce here. But the king of the Ammonites pays no attention to the message that Jephthah sends him. In fact, he sets it aside and he begins to ready his troop to re-engage in the battle with the Israelites. Time for words is over. The king gets ready. Jephthah gets the army that he has prepared for war. And this, this is where the story takes a nauseous turn. And every time I read this, it makes me angry. It makes me horribly sad. It just frustrates me what Jephthah does. The first sentence is good. The Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. And if you remember that phrase from when we talked about Gideon, it was a very palpable presence that came over these leaders. When the Spirit of the Lord came on them, it gave them physical strength. It gave them military strength. It gave them wisdom. There was no doubt when this happened that God was with you. God was going to give you the battle. And so he took the troops and he marches through the territories he needs to go through to engage the Ammonites. And on the way, Jephthah makes a vow to God. He says, God, if you will give the Ammonites into my hands whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's and I'll sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Why in the world would he say this? You know, some people have said, well, he was thinking about the animals that often lived in the first floor of a home in that day. None of those animals made a good sacrifice. Maybe the cats, but the dogs weren't a good sacrifice. The, the you know, did he think his, his kid's pet rabbit was going to come hopping out of the house the first thing when he got home? What in the world was he thinking? Why would he make a vow like this? Because in the original Hebrew language, that whatever comes out the door to meet me definitely doesn't refer to an animal. It refers to a person. So he's literally saying, whoever comes out, he's making this promise to do a human sacrifice if God gives him victory. Now, the battle isn't described in great detail in this passage. Just two verses where the Bible says, Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns. It's a huge win. It was a massacre. The Ammonites were routed and destroyed. The Bible doesn't devote much to the battle because that's not the big issue here. The big issue is this insane vow that Jephthah has made. And when Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, 
dancing to the sound of the timbrels, which were a tambourine. This shouldn't have surprised Jephthah. In ancient Israel, in every culture that surrounded them, when a general came back from fighting, when soldiers came back from fighting and they'd been victorious, the entire town came out to greet them, dancing and singing their praises. He should have known his daughter was going to be one of the first ones out to greet him. What makes it worse? She's an only child. Jephthah has no other sons or daughters. And when he saw her, the Bible says, he tore his clothes, just a sign of instant, deep grieving that he went through. And he cried out and said, No, my daughter, you've brought me down and I'm devastated because I've made a vow to the Lord that I can't break. I read that and I hope for this Isaac and Abraham kind of moment where God sweeps in and rescues Jephthah from this foolish vow that he's made. That moment never comes. Jephthah agrees and gives his daughter two months to roam the hillsides with her friends and grieve over the fact that her life is going to end far too soon. She'll never marry. She'll never have children. And at the end of two months, she returns to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed. Why? Why would he make the vow? Why would he follow through on that vow? And honestly, I read this and I go, why in the world do we need this in the Bible? And when I hear that question in my head, I come back to the one verse we've talked about throughout this series. This anchor verse for us in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, all this stuff is written down, Old Testament, New Testament. It's all written down in our history books as warning markers. Written down so we don't repeat their mistakes. Jephthah's story raises some really important questions for us. And the questions center around, what is the nature of our relationship with God? What's he desire in that relationship? The first question that comes to mind for me is, am I really following God or am I just using God? Jephthah, when you read the text, it's really obvious, he has absorbed these foreign practices from all the nations around him, from the culture around him. Every one of the seven religions that uh, this passage names that the Israelites worshipped Every one of them practiced child sacrifice, infant sacrifice, human sacrifice. It was just a part of their worship. And they were convinced that you needed to do something that drastic in order to get the deities to do what it was you were asking. And so Jephthah borrows from their religion and makes a vow that is really, in its truest form, an attempt to manipulate and control God to get what he wanted, which was victory. I am convinced, reading this story and 35 years of living as a Christian, that the greatest danger to our faith is to imagine that God is a servant of our desires. To use God to get what we need. To use God to get us out of trouble. To use God to help solve our problems. And we might never say that, But sometimes our actions betray what we really believe. 
we drift into using God when we feel like our desires, our desires, are the best measure of what's best for us. As if the only best way to resolve a crisis in our life is to do it in the way that we think it should be resolved. And so we go to God with an attitude that reeks of we're the only ones who are all-knowing, all-wise, and all-loving. Paul cautions us in the New Testament. He says that kind of a faith is not just unhealthy, it's not just wrong, it's toxic to our souls. We must never try to get Christ to serve us instead of us serving Him. We're called to love Him, to serve Him, not use Him like a genie in a bottle to grant our wishes. The second question that comes to my mind in this passage is this. Do I really love God or is it merely my ideas about God that I love? There's lots of scholarly ink about this crazy vow that Jephthah makes and why he would have made it. And though we'd love to believe otherwise, this was not a hasty, foolish exclamation. Jephthah has already proven himself to be a man who thinks through and writes out his words. He's shown himself to be logical, deeply emotional, and articulate. So I am convinced that he knew full well what he was promising as he tries to spark to strike a bargain with God based on what he believes to be true about God rather than what is true. And in doing so, he shows that he really doesn't know the truth about God. Because the truth about God is that he had already promised Jephthah victory. He didn't need to bargain. The truth about God is that he never approved of human sacrifices. In fact, the law in the Old Testament says multiple times, don't do that. Don't borrow the practice of the foreign nations and the land you're about to go into. God says, I abhor human sacrifices. Don't do that. It was just as shocking and wrong to God as it is to us. The truth is that God knew that people would make stupid vows that they should never fulfill. So even in his law, he made provision and said, look, you do something rash and foolish, you make a promise that is destructive, going to ruin your life or somebody else's, you don't have to fulfill it. Instead, go to the temple and present a monetary offering and you'll be relieved of the obligation to fulfill the vow. It's easy to characterize Jephthah as someone who makes a stupid vow. But sometimes we do the same thing. We make deals with God. We say, look, God, if then, like, if I get this job, if that person I want to go out with says yes, if I get a raise, if I win the lottery, then, I mean, you can fill in the blanks for yourself about how we make those bargains with God. And in those moments, we are no different than Jephthah. When we act on partial information and bad assumptions about a relationship with God. In His grace, God had made allowance for people to make dumb mistakes in this. And in His grace, there was a way out so that you didn't have to wreck your life. See, Jephthah's life and his practices are a really good example of what we begin to we have begun to call this word syncretism. It's a 
big theological word that just simply means that people take God's truth and truths from other religions and mix them together to come up with a faith for themselves. Jephthah had done that. He had handcrafted this customized faith. And that's why his life takes this distressing, disgusting turn that did not have to be, that God didn't want, simply because he had created a picture in his mind. He had ideas in his mind about God that were horribly inaccurate. Uh, I I make no bones about it. I talked about it a few minutes ago uh, at the start of the message, but I love Sundays here. I, I love when I get to sit out there and listen, and I'm not teaching, and maybe you feel the same way. You're glad when I'm out there listening and not teaching. But Sundays, in spite of the great teaching we get from Darren and Danielle and the guests who come in, the great teaching we get on Sundays is not enough to help us develop an accurate picture of who God is and what He wants in our life. It was never designed to be it. It'd be like you saying, I'm just going to eat one meal a week, Sunday morning. Now, To be fair, I look at myself in the mirror and I go, I probably should do that some. But that's not a way to sustain life, right? We need more than that to nourish our souls. Sunday alone can't serve as our only source. Or we end up with all these misconceptions, these wrong beliefs, these wrong practices in our life. And we have this wrong relationship with God. We need more than Sunday morning to deal with the blind spots in our lives and help us grow. Paul says it this way in Ephesians. He says, look, don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. And the good news is we learn what he wants to do by digging into his words, the Bible. We invest time reading and studying. I I look at it as the user's guide for the Christian life. The psalmist said, God, your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. We don't have to stumble around in the dark guessing what God wants, guessing the kind of relationship. We have to dig into his word, invest the time and the energy to understand it, and we'll grow. I think that for me, the best way I've found through the years to discover what God wants in my life and what he wants in my relationship with him is when I do that in the company of friends. People who love us enough to tell us the truth. I am convinced that if Jephthah had had a group around him like that, his daughter would not have been sacrificed. If he had people who knew the truth and could tell him the truth, and say, look, God abhors that. Don't do it. It's not an option. Take the plan B God's provided. Who are those people for you? Who are the people in your life who love you enough to take the risk and point out when you're headed towards some stinking thinking or when your actions are out of line or when you have ideas about God that just aren't true? I have two community groups that do that for me. I have a men's group that meets on Thursdays and uh, Connie and I are in a couples group that meet on Sunday night. And the best part about those groups for me is I get to take off my pastor hat. We've had that conversation. And I get to be just me. And I get to say some really dumb stuff. You know, they love me enough to let me do that just like they do. And I get to ask my questions. And I get to think out loud in that group. 
And I get to grow to understand what a good, good God it is that we serve. To not know our Bible, to not dig into it, to not be in a community group, to try to just make it based on Sunday morning alone, it makes the Christian life harder than it has to be. And it can have devastating effects on us, on our children, on the people we're in relationships with. Everybody we touch. Given what we know about Jephthah from this story, it would be a safe assumption to say he's not only unlikely, he's not going to become a hero. He'll never be remembered as a hero of the faith. But that's exactly how the writer of Hebrews describes him. Listen, he says, he writes and he says, Look, I don't have time to tell you about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah. Or about David and Samuel and the prophets. That's some pretty heady company he's named with, right? So people we look at and go, they really are heroes of the faith. Except Barak. Who in the world is that? But he goes on to write and he says, look, these are people who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised. People whose weakness was turned into strength. Who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Jephthah was the illegitimate son born to a prostitute, rejected and disinherited by his family, was a leader of a terrorist cell. Jephthah was hurt, angry, bitter, ambition-driven, ready to fight, manipulative, ignorant of God's law, abusive of his daughter, lacking boundaries, contentious, emotionally reactionary, revengeful, and he had this penchant for doing what was right in his own eyes anytime it worked for his gain. And see, Jephthah had some weaknesses wouldn't you? And yet, Jephthah makes this list of spiritual heroes in Hebrews. Not because he's perfect, but because we follow a God who is ridiculously gracious. Because we follow a God who makes broken things whole, who makes old things new. We follow a God who loves to draw straight lines with crooked pencils. And God redeems us, you and me, not because we deserve it, not on any of our own merit, because we're all crooked pencils. There's a lot in our life that says that we are undeserving. But He redeems us, He saves us, He forgives us, He restores us. And then in the most gracious act of all, He manifests His power, not in spite of our weaknesses, but through those very weaknesses that we don't want anybody to know about. Which begs one final question from Jephthah's life. Do you believe that God can redeem you? Who you are, today all of your story can he redeem it can he restore you to a place of health and wholeness do you believe god can give life to your weary bones do you believe that god can use you jephthah was unlikely in every way to have any significance in his life let alone be used by god and yet his story reminds us 
powerfully that no one is beyond God's power to redeem and no one is beyond God's grace to restore.